Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, True Love Waits, How a Hippie Peace Freak Became a Social Conservative, and the author is Joanna Chestnut, and Joanna joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Joanna. Hello. How are you? Well, I'm doing great. Uh, This is a much, I think, needed book because there's, as you point out, so much, so much sex on tv like it doesn't matter do it and some something good's going to come out of it and and yet uh, we know the impact that this kind of lifestyle this free sex this one night stands and now kids are talking about hooking up uh, it's the same mm-hmm. old thing but you're just uh, you you know an original hippie Back in the 60s, the 70s, while still embracing a liberal ideology, you also believe in saving sex for marriage. So we're going to find out all what you feel about that and what you uh, understand is the best way to go in these in today's relationships. But first, tell us about your background, Joanna, and how this book came about. Okay, uh, well... I was born and raised in a small town in New Jersey during the 50s and the 60s. And from 1972 until today, I have raised six children, five of whom are adopted. I earned my bachelor's degree from Jacksonville University in Florida and a master's degree in nonprofit administration from Greenwich University in Hilo, Hawaii. Uh, In 1998, I became a grant writer and for over 10 years, I helped fund nonprofit organizations in the San Francisco Bay Area. My husband and I and four of our children relocated to the Seattle, Washington area in July of 2008. Having been divorced now from my husband uh, last year of 26 years, we now live uh, outside of Seattle, Washington. I live there with my two youngest children who are ages 18 and 20. The reason I wanted to write this book, and this book has been kind of percolating in me for many years, and I always thought to myself, why doesn't somebody write a book like this? And uh, when I didn't see it happening, I thought, well, why shouldn't it be me? So I sat down to write the book, and... Uh, I just want to say that uh, whether you're gay, straight, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered, or questioning, this book has a powerful message for you about love, sex, and marriage. And that message is basically you need to get to know your partner on a platonic level, spiritually, intellectually and emotionally before engaging in a physical intimate relationship because that makes sex much more meaningless much more meaningful and i believe it even raises sex to a sacred act um, with marriage as a sacrament and physical sex as kind of the culmination of a real intimacy and a holistic intimacy and you're not, your beliefs aren't based on the Bible or other religious teachings. You're looking at this from a completely different point of view. Yes, I'm looking at it from a completely, um, I think, more of a spiritual view, not a religious view. Um, I'm looking at it as uh, sex is sacred, and we as humans have the ability to... Uh, wait, and um, we don't have to have immediate gratification, and we can make sex the private and meaningful act it was meant to be. Uh, now, if people are reading my book and they are religious and, you know, believe in the Bible, 
they can base <clears throat> they can base their actions on that. But uh, as far as the book is concerned, I don't base it on any religion, one, any particular religion on the Bible. So what does TV and the movies and, of course, online and the radio, what, what is that doing to sex today and from your point of view? Well, as my mother used to say, it, it's cheapening it. It's making it meaningless. It's just like uh, the same thing as if you go eat a hamburger, you know. And guys may be able to do that. They, I believe guys... Some, at least from what I've experienced, guys can have sex and go off and eat a hamburger and not think again about the person they've just been with. While women are different. And women uh, find it very difficult to have physical sex without some kind of a uh, emotional and intellectual connection with the person, with their lover. So I believe, you know, women are more likely to be setting up household the next day after sex thinking they found their true love when he doesn't even call for a second date. I also believe that the barrage of sexual images on TV and in media and video games uh, is sexualizing our children way too early. They're not even allowed to have a childhood without already knowing, like, at age five, um, what sex is and, and uh, you know, they lose their innocence way too early. And, and uh, if I had to do it over again, I would make sure my children had a very carefree childhood and not explain sex to them until they were ready. And I knew they were ready. I would say there's not many voices like yours. Well, Perhaps not. I mean, there there are a lot of Christian and religious other religious groups, um, the uh, the Jewish religion too, who do uh, promote saving sex for marriage, but they they base it on um, what's talked about in the Bible. I don't even know which Bible chapter or verse it is uh, that they're basing that on. But um, I just think it's much much more satisfying and definitely more fulfilling and meaningful to wait. Young people today, you've already mentioned it, this this new relationship called hooking up. What do you think that, how, what is that going to do? What, what kind of impact is that going to have? Well, what I think, what I think it does is it makes sex meaningless, for one thing. And I think it affects uh, people, especially women. I think it um, um, makes women uh, more like objects, and uh, I think it affects them emotionally, and I think it gives them kind of um, uh, uh, I'm not sure what the word is, banality, or it just completely turns them off from being with men. And for men, I'm not sure what the what the uh, impact is of hooking up or a one night stand, but it's probably eventually after numerous times, uh, it's the same thing. It just reduces sex to to equal with any other bodily need. And I don't believe that 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 sex for humans is just another bodily need. I think you know we we can raise above that and make sex sacred and don't have to act on every impulse, you know, like in the animal world. I think that's one thing that sets us apart. When you look at children and you look at the traditional family and the traditional family has changed a great deal, what's the importance of a child being raised by a married couple? How important is that? I think it's extremely important, and I think it's what's going to, if anything ever makes us a healthier society, that's what is going to do it. And I don't believe um, people should plan to have a child without a father. I think that's wrong. I think it's very selfish, 
and I think it, it does a big injustice to the child to not have a father in his or her life. In one chapter in my book, it's called uh, Fathers and Functional Families, and I quote in there from the fatherhood movement all of the benef benefits of a child being raised in a home with, and it doesn't have to be a father and a mother, it could be, you know, two mothers or two fathers, or, um, but two human beings who are in love with that child and care and take care of that child uh, all, all its life and um, are very invested in the child. How do you view sex education today in the schools? Sorely lacking. And I say that because I believe sex education, and I've had my children go through it um, in, in middle school mostly, some in high school, but um, it's lacking because it teaches children to save sex for marriage, but then says, well, if that's not realistic, then be sure to use a condom. And I also quote in my book about the effectiveness of condoms and how they're only 85% uh, effective in preventing the AIDS virus. Um, so I believe they, they leave out the importance of intimacy when they're talking about sex and the importance of getting to know a partner, getting to uh, a place where you can ask the questions you know, if you're serious and you think you might want to get married, you need to ask questions of each other. You need to see each other in all kinds of different situations, both positive and then uh, stressful situations, to see how your partner reacts under that situation because that's the way they're going to be uh, in your marriage if you do decide to marry. And I think they need to ask questions about, you know, how, what are our ideas about child-rearing, uh, where do we want to go for holidays? Have we gotten to know his or her parents? And we know we can get along with them. Um, are we going to commingle our money in marriage or keep it separate? All those kinds of questions uh, need to be worked out way before you decide to tie the knot. The things you've just been discussing, is that real intimacy? Well, I believe real in intimacy is, that's part of it. But getting to know your partner on an intellectual level is a big part of it, too. You know, are you compatible? Do you, uh, if you um, are you of uh, similar educational backgrounds? Um, how do you think, you know, and how do you speak to each other? Um, and then emotional, get to know each other on an emotional level. And that includes, you know, falling in love, and, uh, just getting to know the all the intricacies of your partner's personality. And then um, the next part is, I believe, after marriage, the physical intimacy brings all of those together in a culmination, and that's real intimacy, or sometimes I call it holistic intimacy. So how long a should a courtship be? Before physical intimacy. I'd say, I'd say one to two years, you know, depending on the couple. I think one to two years is a good is is, is a good marker um, for getting to know a person. Some people say you should know your partner through all, all seasons of the year before you make any commitment mm -hmm. or firm decision. We've been listening to Joanna Chestnut. She is the author of her book, True Love Waits, How a Hippie Peace Freak Became a Social Conservative. Joanna, tell us how to get your book. Uh, my book is available on Amazon.com. Um, it's also available on BarnesandNoble.com or from my publisher, which is Ex Libris, and you can look up, have up on um, Google and and find them, and my book is available there as well. Thank you so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Okay, thank you, Steve. It's been enjoyable. Ex Libris returns after these short messages.
Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you, here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Lineage, The Descendants, and the author is Will McClinton. And Will joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Will. Hi, how are you? Well, just great and very interesting story. Uh, very unique because of the way you portray these two brothers ensnared by subterfuge decades in the planning we've got uh well we've got a family situation that deals with christianity and and islam correct yes yes i I decided to put a spin on it and not make it um the routine family and i also thought it might help uh, attract some people from Islamic group into the storyline, and plus I didn't want to make uh, I didn't want to make the Islamic group negative or present them in a negative fashion, because that would seem like a very old hat thing to do for a Christian nation. Right. So I decided I wanted to make, take it another direction, because if people are people, and we always see the worst on TV, no matter which side it is. So once these this subterfuge, as you call it, once this is set in motion, uh, it will not only change their lives, but many other lives will be affected. So it 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 has a, a lot of different twists and turns. Right, right. That that I I believe that would make it interesting to have those twists and turns and attempting to make things unexpected. Since uh, I like reading mysteries, and my sister loves reading mysteries, so that helped make me think of that. Along so the way. these two friends are raised as brothers. We'll find out about Mark and Kamel in just a, a moment. But first of all, Will, tell us about yourself, a little bit about your background, and why you decided to write the book. I started out... Um, working summers in construction in the Houston area when I was a teenager. My summer job was insulating to my stepfather, and I hated working with fiberglass, any and all kinds of fiberglass I hate, especially in that southern Texas heat. <laughs> killer, and I right. liked writing high school. I had gotten into it actually in junior high and then high school, and then I let it go. Life seemed to call, and I didn't know what to do. And writing didn't seem like anything but give me an opportunity to make a living, and I didn't know how to channel it. So 
I went on to do other things and other schools and other educational areas. And so we're so where did the storyline? How did that come about? Um, I I like uh, PBS and different uh, stories uh, from television. So it just started evolving when I watched some of those uh, History Channel and historic things. It made me start uh, clicking in my mind about it and thinking, well, why couldn't we start with a story here? in uh, western New York, they're actually tied into uh, East Texas, uh, New Orleans, and abroad. And then I've always, uh, I like the architectural things going in, in Dubai and in China and Beijing and stuff. It's going like crazy. And so I thought, well, why not make the characters architectural students? We have a ton of colleges around here and universities in this area that are safe. And seem like a good tie-in with that storyline. And then take a smaller city instead of a big, well-known city to start the story off on. And then tie from there. And also you to know. make it a bit controversial, in this case, Christianity is used as a front for the very wealthy and beautiful women seeking power. Yes, that, that was, uh, I kind of evolved too. It was with a, you know, just seeing the national headlines and stuff. I mean, you see us falling in the political parties all the time. It's it's kind of uh, ridiculous to be worrying about both sides are worrying about which uh, congressman's got his shirt off. Who cares? You know, Wayne is ugly and the uh, Republican wasn't bad, but who cares? I don't care if who's trying to score a date or a lay. So that's kind of what got me going in that angle, too, was like, as all people worry about is sex. Well, Stop worrying about the sex and start worrying about where all the money's going. <laughs> and so then I thought about it, and then you see that Chickle for Lay guy made that whole stink about the gay community, and suddenly everyone's boycotting or buying chicken. Well, that's a great way to make a fast bucket in it. Sales <laughs> company, start, a, start controversy on TV. And you saw it work. Yeah, just Amazon make sure you know. Just make you sure you spell my name right, but just get it in the news, huh? That seems to be the way it is, you know? And especially with politics. I wish our country would mature a little bit in that area of always worrying over the sexual part of it and get on. Tell us about Mark and Kamel. Well, Mark Dubois' family is a Arcadian part of them, and... His family ties go back to France, of course, as being French. And I just thought they have an interesting history in this country as well. Um, when I lived in Baton Rouge, we had the, the Prince Murat Hotel with Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew. And there was so much tie-in with that history in our country of even antiques that were basically he went bankrupt in this country. That's how the old, old antiques got into this country from Europe. And so it just kind of got my mind clicking on those things, how to string it in to bring in some of that history. And then I always liked the, um, you know, the ancient history of civilization, so why not dig into the older roots from the old country, like back into the Middle East, Euphrates and Tigris River Valley places in Iran, not Iran, but um, Iraq. I mean, I, when I was working in Baton Rouge, I had guys from Iraq and Iran that were students at LSU, and they were they were looking at these books I had and said, those things are right on. It was uh, some of the ancient history of the world, and it opened up a communication. They were talking about seeing those statues and the uh, ziggurats, what was it called? Mm-hmm. And the symbols and the language on it, and it was like, it was nothing to them, it was junk around the place they lived, or near, and it was like, wow, something um, I could never imagine seeing so easily, I just couldn't, I remember going to uh, New Orleans for the uh, Sun King display and being just amazed at the uh, paintings, and I mean, there was someone on the side of a building, 
kind of stuff that Michelangelo painted, and the Statue of David was there. It was like, wow. It was incredible. So tell us about the subterfuge, the cruelty, and innocence, the, the, how those three play within the plot. Well, the uh, subterfuge uh, angle of it was Angelique, obviously, the, the villain, as um, was seeking to manipulate the brothers and family lines. Kind of got me on that one a little bit. I don't want to get too much plot away, so I'm trying to skim over it. I just like the, the fact that, you know, I could use the character um, to demonstrate the cruelty that people have and towards people, the lack of regard. It's one of the main characters. Well, characters brought into the story is innocent, raised in a convent parochial school background, forced out of her innocence through... Um, the uh, evil character, Angelique, she has no regard for it. And innocence is something to be praised or appreciated. Because you don't, you only have it once. Or for a short time when you see it with children. That's what's so beautiful about like a three or four year old. They're just gorgeous because they're little people, but they're not, they haven't been affected yet by life. So in any way, that's where... Um, in a way, uh, Mark and Kemmel were come from wealth, but they were also, in some ways, especially Mark, was kind of sheltered from real things that happened in the world because of the money. It actually obscured it. He wasn't uh, jaded. So he wasn't sophisticated enough to sidestep the uh, traps that were laid for him. And his brother was too busy in having fun dating running around to uh, notice the problems that were occurring until they were already in the middle of it. Is that helpful? Is everything driven by money here? I think it's more driven by power, but money certainly facilitates the ability to do what you want. Once again, it ties right into the politics. It, we see it constantly. Money greases the wells for whatever you want to do. What do you want? So that's one of your main themes, the uh, politicians using religious morals as a guise to control public opinion, of course, to control the free press, all of that. We see it frequently. It's constantly in play here. Uh, I, I, until you, then when you start looking and look behind what's being said, I mean, why is that? Why, why would anyone care who's sleeping with who? Truthfully, it's no one else's business. So they create, the, I mean, they focus on that to create so-called scandals. They sell a lot of uh, newspapers. A lot of people watch TV. They sell a lot, of, a lot of advertising. Absolutely. It ties right into that. I mean, I have friends that just that they just eat it up. It's like sometimes it gets on my nerves. You know, I don't always watch that or hear about it or be caught up in it. What are you trying to tell us about family history here? Well, I, it seems like so many of us don't really know that much of our history, especially being a lot of us, uh, a lot of us Americans don't. I mean, I, we started delving into some of ours, and it seemed like part of the family didn't even know that um, we were Native American in the past and that we were, had been directly affected by President Jefferson's policies, even though... You couldn't tell I'm in relation to uh, Native Americans in our generation, but a whole group had no clue. But the reason we had our last name was so that they could get off the reservation. So we wound up taking our great-great-great-grandmother's last name from Ireland to get off the reservation. And so in the end, there's going to be a sequel here, but so you leave us hanging, it sounds like. Yes, absolutely. I wasn't sure how to end it. I just finished, I love reading, and how to quite do it, because I didn't want to wind it out completely. So I, yes, I did leave it uh, with a cliffhanger, a jet crash, and characters in different places when everything happens to only be uh, pulled back together and see what happens with them, who survives, who's where, 
what are they going to do to go on? Well, Mark, uh, well, is Kamal dead in a plane crash? You know, how is Mark going to deal with this family issue of what's been done to him, his family, and his extended family in Dubai? Because he has the responsibility for the family future, the financial family future. That rests upon him. Well, it's the, you know, next generation is where it comes in, yes. As it does with every family, eventually the younger generation takes over and assumes responsibility. So it's definitely with him. Why did you write the first part of the book like a screenplay? I just had it in my mind. And I, I actually always wanted to write a screenplay since uh, ninth grade high school. And I couldn't, I couldn't get it out of me. And, I, and so I kept, and then I, I would rewrite, and then I would think in that manner. And I, I just couldn't stop it. And finally, I, I hit a stride and switched out of the screenplay style description. But um, since the Waiting Till Dark with Elizabeth Taylor, and I think Richard Burton was it on Broadway, I had just had it in my head to write a um, screenplay or, or a play, and I just couldn't shake it. It just kept coming up, like how to give a description. And it would be in the form of a director telling the character. We've been listening to Will McClinton. He is the author of his book, Lineage, The Descendants. Will, tell us how to get your book. Well, it is on Ex Libris. It's available in ebook, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. It's um, paperback, hardback, ebooks. Ebooks are, and it was another reason I liked Ex Libris, is because it would tie right in with the, uh, the next generation. It's all electronic right. anyway. And paper really is a thing of the past. Well, so, ebooks are it. And I, I love it. I have ebooks and paperbacks, but I'm phasing into ebooks easily. Oh, I agree. I have, have a Kindle. Have it's real easy to download books on the Kindle. I know that. I have I have a Nook, and I just pop up Barnes and Noble, download it. I've got the uh, Kindle on my laptop. Download it. Hmm. It's, it's a, I didn't have to leave the house to find find a new book to read, which is awesome. Well, thank you, Will, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you. And I hope all the weather down there stays good. Ours has been wonderful up here. Well, that's great. Thank you. You're welcome. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Lost in the Amazon, and the author is Luann Beyer, and Luann joins us on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Luann. Hello. Great Hello to have to you with us. Hello to all the listeners out there. Well, a lot of the listeners, my goodness, I think everyone with Third to seventh graders and adults included are going to love this story. It has a little bit of everything because we're talking about 
uh, young boys with their father uh, crash in the Amazon uh, rainforest and end up being kidnapped. And uh, there's all kinds of, obviously, uh, intrigue and drama and adventure in it. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Luann. Uh, how did this all come about? I have told stories to my grandchildren for many years, and my family keeps telling me that I should write them down. But I couldn't kind of find the motivation to do it. So I was at my son and daughter-in-law's, and they said, you know, Grandma, you've got to write these stories down for us. So one day I just sat at their kitchen table and took out a notebook and told my grandson, um, you've got to color because Grandma's going to write. So I started, I wrote the first two pages, and then when the two older came home from school, I said, well, I started writing the first book today, but I ran into something that I don't know what to do with. So my granddaughter just flat out told me, oh, you have to do this and that. That was with our first book, and it just, I was excited about it then. My husband got excited. Um, he's been a science teacher for 25 years, and he was able to help me with some of the more technical views that I needed to bring out. So that's really how I got started, and they're right with me. They help me with ideas. They're even doing some of the illustrations in the book. How wonderful is that? That is. That is a family project, and everyone loves the story. Well, let's back up here and start with some of the, uh, just give us a little idea about the characters in, in the book. Uh, let's start with the father. Now, what's his name? His name is Brad. Uh, he's an engineer who builds homes, and due to the uh, housing that was you know, our country was going through, there really wasn't much business, so he contracted with a national firm to go to Equitos, Peru, to find a way for their logging industry to work with getting their their um, wood, their lumber, to the United States. So he contracted with a uh, South American native pilot with a single-engine plane to take him there and invited his two sons, Peter and Andy, along. Well, and I'm sure they were excited, and uh, as you say, uh, Manny the pilot, tell everyone who Manny the pilot is. <laughs> well, Manny is uh, the most interesting character, and uh, he has flown all over the country. He has this single-engine airplane that's a Stinson. It's kind of an um, old kind of a plane, but it's real reliable. When they take off, it shakes and rattles, and those poor little boys in the back were, uh, like, scared because they didn't know if this was going to make it. And he turned around and said to them, I named my plane the Domatilia, and in Spanish that means Cinderella. And he said, she's, um, she's just very reliable, and she'll get us there and back. So that's um, how we got up into the air, and then the, this is the two boys' first flight ever. So you can imagine their intrigue when they looked down and saw all of the patchwork and the rivers and the countryside, and it, uh, was, it, it was an awesome sight for them. So why choose the country of Peru? Well, uh, when I started with finding a place to go to, uh, first of all, um, I'm interested in the environment, especially in the effect that trees have on our climate. I grew up in a part of the country where there weren't any trees, and when we moved to northern Minnesota, it was just like a bonanza, a wonder, with all the trees and the lakes here. So this was an opportunity to, to showcase what deforestation is doing to the environment is kind of why I chose the rainforest. And then um, the uh, other thing is, is that it's a mystical country. The country of Peru is uh, centuries old. It's a fascinating country, has great beauty. There's centuries-old cultures. And, um, of course, they have that mighty Amazon River and the primeval forest and the people who live in harmony with the earth. 
So all these things kind of just fit together, and our fiction adventure took place. So I checked it out with the family, and they said, oh, that would be great. So that's how we, how we chose Equitos, Peru. Now, Equitos, Peru doesn't have any roads. They do everything by airplane and by ship. So there had to be an, an, um, some sort of a connection to, for um, the dad, Brad, to meet with the company there to get the wood, to find a way to get it to the United States. Peter and Andy, tell us about them. What, what are they like? Well, Peter is a tall, kind of gangly, kind of blonde-haired boy. He uh, likes to play soccer. He's sports-minded. He's a Boy Scout. Uh, he came up the ranks through the Cub Scout and a Boy Scout. He likes fishing. And his younger brother, Andy, who's two years, about a year and a half, two years younger than him, is a bookish type. He reads and he does more with um, encyclopedias and that, where Peter likes to go on the Internet and do research. So along with um, their dad, they they um, decided that this would just be a real adventure for them, and it turned into even more because as they were on their second time to fill gas, um, they were taken hostage by the drug cartel. They were uh, kidnapped and held. They got, had um, tape put over their feet and their mouths, and and um, but the boys had a special insight and they were able to get them freed but the cartel didn't like losing so they followed them and in turn sabotaged the plane which caused them to crash in the Amazon in the forest in the rainforest and that's where lost in the Amazon became the title and their dad is injured yes their dad is comatose and the pilot they felt the pilot had been killed and so they um, went ahead with uh, making a raft. They used all that Manny had told them on their way down to his home, and he kept telling them stories about the river, about the Amazon and the forest, and how the people had lived all these centuries, some of their um, techniques. And so they were able to take some um, parts out of the airplane and cut some wood, and they built a raft. And they uh, went, actually went out on the raft and went down the river to look for help with their dad. And uh, they were very frightened. But um, there's kind of a little a side story to this, um, because our family has all been involved in amateur radio, so we're very cognizant of getting our story about amateur radio out. And the pilot, Manny, was also on the, on the air. He had a radio right in his airplane. So they were able to call on there not knowing anybody had heard them. But their message got out. It was all heard all over, and it spread all over the Internet and the, the radio. People knew uh, that there were these two young boys with their comatose dad in the middle of the forest. And so it was really um, kind of... Um, wonderful that they people knew where they were, but on top of that, also the bandits knew. Then they heard too, so they came in pursuit because they didn't want anybody to uh, be able to survive after they got um, got away from them at that airport. So there's a very strong theme of good versus evil, with good winning out. Absolutely. I tell you, these two young boys, how they um, worked together, um, they were able to take all of the information that the pilot had told them. And I think in the end, um, I'd like the readers to know that viewed through the lens of a native South American pilot, these two young boys offer a new perspective on how the Amazon River and the eco system works, um, a lot about the history of the rainforest and the survival, because it isn't easy. Uh, there were many, many people who came up from the eastern sea coast of, uh, uh, through the Amazon and, and never made it. So it's, um, it is really very exciting and suspenseful that these two young boys were able to uh, build this raft and survive on the 
river and find a place. Um, they found a, a village of natives, and they had a shaman there or shaman, whichever way you like to pronounce it. And um, he helped get their dad healed. And in the end, they found out that Manny, the pilot, was from this original native. He had survived the crash. He was uh, kind of got a powder up into his into his um, uh, nasal cavity, and it, it put him into kind of like a hibernation state. So after um, the boys um, left and went on the raft and went down the river, these bandits came back and. And um, but Manny was covered up and was hiding, and he was able then to call his help for help to come and get him through the amateur radio. So it's got a lot of twists and turns, and they were very thrilled when they found out that Manny was alive, and that their dad was um, going to be okay too. And on top of all this excitement and adventure and intrigue, there's the punt, the pet monkey Zoe. <laughs> yes. I mean, how many books can you read that somebody's got a little pet monkey called Zoe? And um, Zoe um, lives in the house with Manny. He has a compound because there's uh, many of the birds and the animals are getting extinct because of deforestation. So he houses them, and when he isn't home, he has, he has helpers there with him. And many scientists and environmentalists come to his place course, you know, it's all my imagination talking here. But um, they come and they do studies with the birds and the animals, like the scarlet macaw, um, the um, panther, the black panther, and there's many uh, different animals that are, are nearly gone. And so these, um, he, he has this favorite little monkey, though, he took into his home. And he's just a cutie. And um, we had help drawing him, so we have a picture of him in our book. We just loved him. So how many books can you read where you have a pet monkey in your house and you also have an um, airplane that has a Spanish name that means princess and um, that you get to meet a pilot like Manny? Of course, I'm the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's told from the pilot's point of view? Yes, yes, all that. It, it, was, it was really fun to write um, because... I could um, talk about uh, the Sargasso Sea. I don't know if many people have heard of the Sargasso Sea, but it's a region off of the southeastern coast of the United States, and it's a huge, big um, gathering of, like, seaweed, and um, it's actually is a gulf weed, and so I, I hadn't really heard about that in doing to all my reading. My husband was in the submarine service, and their submarine, the captain stopped it to, to see. They took out the big fish hooks, and they, they just pulled up big strings of seaweed uh, filled with all kinds of life. So you all can learn about the Sargasso Sea and the difference in the Atlantic, the Pacific Ocean. Um, learn about um, the Panama Canal and a whole lot about the forest. And um, I hope that our book uh, will uh, uh, give you an opportunity to, to appreciate what that forest means to the world and uh, the people who live there yet today and are struggling to keep it going. But it's an, it's an intergenerational book, and um, they built a bridge of trust on them. And uh, I just believe that um, someday that this will the drug cartel will also um, not have the power that they do over people. Well, it has excitement, it's inspirational, it's educational, and it's a sequel to your first novel. I guess this was Peter and Andy, uh, Six Days Inside a Mountain? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That's <laughs> the one that I started writing at the, my son's kitchen table. And that's about the two boys, too. It's about survival um, Peter was a little arrogant, and um, but they got um, lost up in the mountains and went into the cave in order to look for food and water. And uh, he used a lot of his Boy Scout techniques to get them there, and then they remembered some things that Andy had read, too. But um, they depended on each other. But underneath all of it, Peter kind of felt like 
his dad would have lost the trust in him. So he carried this with him uh, through that book and into this one. And when they got saved their dad from the from the forest and and got him to where the Indians could cure him, um, he felt exonerated. So actually, uh, there was quite a few lessons that came out of that. And uh, Peter then was felt that his dad would trust him again. And the characters just demanded to, for you to continue the story. Yes, it's okay. So now, my <laughs> granddaughter, two of them, who said, Okay, Grandma, now you've written two now. books with them. Now we yeah. want a book with us. So ah. uh, we are working on our sequel to this. Because, see, these two boys got a gift. And when you read the books, you'll find out what all that's about. And it's carried over into the third one because their special insights they've used first to save themselves from the mountain and second to save their dad from the jungle. And third, now they're going to have to save somebody, some humanity. So, um, yes, we are. We've got uh, probably about a third of the new book ready. And that one will be in China. So we are really doing a lot of research and uh, trying to find an interesting and intriguing story. So watch for that go. one. I'm sure it will be good, just like Lost in the Amazon. And the other one uh, was Six Days in a Cave. Was that it? Six, six, six Days Inside a Mountain. Inside a Mountain. Well, thank you so much, Luann, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Tell us how to get your book. Well, there's several different ways you can do that. Um, first of all, um, that you, you can use the Ex Libris site, uh, which you can go online at www.exlibris, and that is spelled X-L-I-B-R-I-S.com, or I'm on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com, or um, actually um, any... Any, uh, I'm on 29 wholesale houses. So if you look it up on the Internet, you'll find it. And I'm just starting my web page, so I haven't got a website yet. But that, that will be done at the end of this month. So I appreciate all the audience out there. And um, the books will be here long after me, but I hope that people will be reading these adventures for, for a long time. Well, thank you, Luann. Thank you again for this great story. Thank you. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.